It turns out that if you want to understand what is going on with Israel in the early 1970s, you have to look to the teenage years of the future King Hussein of Jordan. On July 20th, 1951, the future king's grandfather, King Abdullah I of Jordan, came to Jerusalem. He was there to attend the funeral of his prime minister, who had been assassinated earlier in the week, and rumor had it that he was also there to negotiate a potential peace with Israel, just three years after the war which secured the Jewish state's existence. King Abdullah arrived for Friday prayers at the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount, accompanied by heavy security and his teenage grandson, Hussein. Suddenly, a Palestinian gunman burst out of the crowd and fired four bullets, three into the king's chest and head, killing him instantly, and one into the chest of the 16-year-old Hussein. Yet minutes earlier, the king had pinned a big medal to the boy's chest, a medal which now deflected the bullet, saving Hussein's life. Abdullah's son, Hussein's father, was the rightful heir, but he was mentally ill, so the throne fell to his traumatized grandson, who now became King Hussein of Jordan. Hussein never forgot the moment that made him king, and he learned two lessons. Trying to make peace with Israel might cost you your life, and don't trust the Palestinians. Hussein developed a loathing for Palestinian terrorism that rivaled that of Israel. It wouldn't be the last time that they tried to kill him. Palestinian terrorists would bedevil King Hussein throughout his monarchy. By the time we begin the 1970s, tensions in the kingdom reached a boiling point. Civil war broke out between the Jordanian military and the Palestinian terrorists led by Yasser Arafat. It's one of the most important Middle Eastern wars that we've never heard of. Although it ended badly for the Palestinians that tried to seize control of Jordan, the impact would have far-reaching consequences. It nearly ignited another war between Israel and its neighbors, and it served as the origin point for a terrorist group that named itself after the dark days of the Civil War, Black September. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. At the beginning of September 1970, terrorists with the PFLP, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, hijacked five airliners, a record that wasn't broken even by Al-Qaeda 31 years later. The PFLP was an offshoot of the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, an umbrella group for Palestinian terrorist organizations headed by Yasser Arafat. The plan was to take the airliners to Dawson's Field, an airstrip in the Jordanian desert, and hold the passengers there as hostages in exchange for the release of terrorists being held in Israeli and European prisons. On September 6, the first two planes were successfully hijacked. The PFLP terrorists ran into trouble with the third, an El Al Boeing 707 that stopped in Amsterdam on its way from New York to Tel Aviv. There were two terrorists on board. One of them was Leila Khaled, who a year earlier had become the first female airplane hijacker. During that previous attack, she had a picture taken that made her look like a young, attractive revolutionary, rather than, well, the attempted murderer of children that she really was. Realizing that her celebrity was an impediment to killing Jews, she had plastic surgery to alter her face, and now, a year later, was on board this El Al jet. 
She and her accomplice rushed the cockpit with guns and grenades they had smuggled on board. But the LL captain, Uri Barlev, pushed the plane into a nosedive, knocking the two terrorists off their feet. Passengers pounced on her accomplice, who shot an Israeli flight attendant before he himself was killed by an Israeli sky marshal. Leila Khaled pulled the pin on her grenade and tossed it down the aisle, intending to blow up all 148 people on board. But the grenade failed, and Khaled was captured and imprisoned in Britain. The PFLP snagged two more airliners in the days after the unsuccessful El Al attempt. Three of the planes ended up at Dawson's Field and one went to Cairo. A few days later, the terrorists began releasing hundreds of hostages, but they kept dozens of Israelis, Jews, Americans, and a few other European nationalities. Although the PFLP had decided not to kill any of the passengers, the hostages of course didn't know that. In a savvy bit of PR, the terrorists allowed the media to set up camp at the end of the runway and held a press conference to highlight the Palestinian cause. They declared the hostages to be political prisoners of war and demanded the release of their fellow terrorists, which now included Leila Khaled. It was an international crisis. CBS News correspondent Marvin Kalb called it, quote, America's introduction to global terrorism, end quote. Israel and the United States refused to negotiate. Richard Nixon wanted to bomb the airfield, but it wasn't feasible. The UN demanded the hostages be released. Only the British government indicated a willingness to negotiate, worried that Israel would try a rescue mission that would get the British hostages killed. And the terrorists, too, were afraid of an attack. They were up against a looming deadline to get their friends released from prison, after which they weren't sure what would happen. So on September 12th, the PFLP dramatically blew up the three empty Dawson's Fields planes live on TV. They moved the remaining hostages to secret locations around Jordan, promising to hold them until Israel and the West gave in. It was at this point that King Hussein of Jordan had had enough. While the hostages remained in the desert, two Popular Front spokesmen, identified only as Comrade Bassam and Comrade Ibrahim, discussed the hijackings with newsmen. Can you tell me? Can you tell me what is being done for the passengers out there in the desert? What is being done now? They are in very good health, and uh, they are treated very well by our fighters. How long do you plan on keeping them? Till our uh, demands. Here is the problem. Palestinians made up two-thirds of Jordan's population and comprised half the seats in parliament. They had both political power and street power. But Jordan also had a rival for the center of Palestinian politics, the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO terrorist group headed by Yasser Arafat. Arafat was both the head of the PLO and the leader of its largest faction called Fatah. The various groups like Fatah and the PFLP and a zillion other offshoots didn't always get along, and it could be confusing who was giving what orders to whom. But they were ultimately united in their hatred of Israel, the West, and, as we'll see, Jordan. Yasser Arafat had declared the PLO to be the only legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. Its purpose was an armed struggle for the destruction of Israel. The PLO claimed ownership over the Palestinian territories taken during the Six-Day War, especially the West Bank, which Jordan considered to be its own territory. King Hussein had never wanted an independent Palestinian state, 
He worried that it would undermine his throne and cause unrest amongst Jordan's majority Palestinian population. The PLO wanted Jordan's support for their war against Israel, but Hussein refused. This whole time, he was conducting secret negotiations with Israel behind the scenes. Since the end of the Six-Day War, Palestinian terrorist groups under the PLO had been using Jordanian territory as a platform to attack Israel. They were known as Fedayeen, an Arabic word meaning someone willing to sacrifice themselves. Under Yasser Arafat, the Fedayeen embedded themselves in the Palestinian refugee camps and the small towns, ruling them as their own independent territory. According to the historian Howard Sacker, they even issued their own license plates, imposed their own taxes, and recruited young Jordanians to join them instead of the Jordanian army. They were, in effect, a state within a state. Obviously, no ruler can tolerate this. But whenever King Hussein tried to push back, the Fedayeen reacted violently. A few months before the Dawson's Field hijackings, King Hussein had imprisoned several PFLP members. The Palestinians seized hotels in Amman, the Jordanian capital, holding hundreds of Europeans hostage, murdered the United States' military attaché, raped several American women, and created mayhem until Hussein gave in. The PLO was rapidly taking over whole parts of Jordan and its government and were starting to call for the monarchy to be overthrown. There were frequent rounds of fighting between the Fedayeen and the Jordanian army, a cycle of violence that was undermining the Jordanian government and threatening to collapse the country. And then the PLO tried to assassinate King Hussein. Twice. And then came the Dawson's Field hijackings in September of 1970. Hussein was finished with these guys. Jordan went to war against the Palestinian terrorist groups. The government shelled Palestinian refugee camps, killing hundreds of PLO fighters and probably several thousand Palestinian civilians. It was an all-out civil war that threatened to pull in everyone else. Because now Syria invaded Jordan in support of the Palestinian guerrillas, hoping to seize Jordan for themselves. Jordan needed help. King Hussein called his Western ally, the United States, and asked President Nixon to please call his friend, Israel, to ask for an airstrike on the Syrians. So this is quite the plot twist. A minute ago, Jordan was invading Israel. Now they're asking Prime Minister Golda Meir for an airstrike on their own territory to prevent an invasion from Syria. The Israelis were momentarily shocked, but on further reflection, it wasn't the craziest idea. Jordan may still have been Israel's enemy, but King Hussein's moderation was vastly preferable to any terrorist Palestinian state. Israel didn't want to see Jordan collapse. If it did, Israel was prepared to invade to secure strategic territory. But the Syrians were the Soviet Union's ally. Israel worried that attacking the Syrians would cause the Soviet Union to attack Israel. The United States promised to support Israel. So now this fight between King Hussein and the PLO is turning into a proxy war for the two global superpowers. It's a mess, and the Syrians were still coming in hot. Yitzhak Rabin, the heroic head of the IDF during the Six-Day War, was now serving as Israel's ambassador to the United States and working closely with the Nixon White House. He came up with a compromise solution. Instead of an airstrike, the Israeli Air Force flew fast and low over the Syrian forces as a warning. 
Look what we can do to you. Syria got the message and retreated. Jordan was saved. The Dawson's Field hijacking crisis came to an end when the remaining hostages were released in exchange for the Palestinian prisoners, including Leila Khaled. By the way, if you want to know where the idea of X-raying people before they got in the plane comes from, well, here you go. It was after this crisis that President Nixon initiated a program to use military technologies like the X-ray for airport security. Yitzhak Rabin wrote that this incident had far-reaching implications for the relationship between the United States and Israel. The American government appreciated Israel's willingness to work closely with the United States in protecting American interests in the Middle East, and for the first time, many officials in the United States now saw Israel as an essential partner. No longer just a tiny country begging for American weapons and international support, the United States realized just how crucial Israel was in a crisis. Nixon conveyed to Rabin his gratitude. Quote, The United States is fortunate in having an ally like Israel in the Middle East. These events will be taken into account in all future developments. End quote. This is diplomatic speak for, we owe you one. Rabin said it was, quote, probably the most far-reaching statement ever made by a president of the United States on the mutuality of the alliance between the two countries, end quote. From then on, Israel would be a close partner and strategic ally of the United States. The Jordanian Civil War ultimately resulted in a defeat for the PLO. Much of the organization had been wiped out, their bases destroyed, their cities recaptured by Jordan, and thousands killed or taken prisoner. The last 2,000 fighters held out until the summer of 1971, but were surrounded then by the Jordanian army and surrendered. Yasser Arafat and his Fedayeen were kicked out of Jordan. Long story short, the PLO set up shop in southern Lebanon, along the border with Israel. And there, too, they would spark another civil war in the 1970s and 80s, dragging in again the Israelis and Americans and everyone else. Lovely people. But in the meantime, Israel's eastern border with Jordan fell fairly quiet, as the PLO was no longer able to carry out major attacks. For now. King Hussein may have defeated the Palestinian terrorists, but it came at a significant cost. He was condemned by his fellow Arab leaders as having sold out the Palestinians, the civil war created lasting en enmity between the PLO, their supporters, and the Jordanian government. But it also created tension within the PLO, as some members thought that the mainstream Fatah group had been too moderate. Arafat was now looking at a tug-of-war between his faction and those who wanted to amp up the violence. Palestinians referred to their losses of September 1970 as Black September, and some of the more militant members of Fatah weren't ready to give up the fight. It's unclear how exactly the terrorist organization that took the name Black September got started, but there's general agreement that it was an offshoot of Fatah controlled by Yasser Arafat. It may have been designed to enable the kind of spectacular operations that the PLO was now struggling to carry out, and as a cover for the PLO to deny responsibility for what was to come. The Black September terrorist group burst onto the scene at the end of November 1971, when they assassinated the Jordanian Prime Minister. 
The group's official goal was retaliation against Jordan and the hated King Hussein for expelling the Palestinian terrorist groups. But they quickly expanded their mission. The Israeli journalist Ronan Bergman writes that the leader of Black September, quote, redefine the enemies of the Palestinian people, beginning with U.S. imperialism, passing through the Arab regimes tied to it, and ending with Israel, end quote. Black September brought the fight to Israel in May of 1972, but they were in for a rude introduction. A Sabina Airlines Boeing 707 from Belgium to Israel was hijacked by four terrorists, two men and two women pretending to be couples, and flown to Israel. Jewish and non-Jewish passengers were separated into the front and back of the plane. Landing at Lod Airport, today's Ben-Gurion Airport, the hijackers demanded the release of 315 Palestinian prisoners in exchange for the 97 people on board. Israeli officials quickly gathered in the airport control tower, including Defense Minister Moshe Dayan, Transportation Minister Shimon Peres, and David Elazar, head of the IDF. For hours, Moshe Dayan argued with the terrorists to the plane's British pilot, Captain Reginald Levy. The terrorists threatened to blow up the plane if the Israelis didn't supply the necessary fuel and power to take off. The negotiations turned tense. Late into the night, Israel agreed to the fuel, but claimed that there was a mechanical problem with the plane that could be solved only with daylight. The terrorists agreed to wait until the morning. At 2.30 a.m., the Israelis had put together a daring operation to retake the plane, and Prime Minister Golda Meir approved. Israeli commandos snuck under the plane to deflate the tires, using that pretext as their excuse for needing maintenance. At noon, Captain Levy was allowed to leave the plane to finalize the negotiations with Moshe Dayan. In 2022, the Israeli military released the full logs from the crisis. As Moshe Dayan started to speak, Captain Levy interrupted him to tell him how serious the situation was. True to form, Moshe Dayan insisted on talking first. I'm the general here and you're just a captain, he said, to which Captain Levy replied that he'd be happy to switch ranks and places. The Israelis informed the terrorists that the mechanics were coming to the plane. By 4.20 p.m., the mechanics, all dressed in white coveralls, were waiting under the wings. Of course, they were not mechanics, but a team of 17 Sayeret Matkal commandos, Israel's most elite special forces. They were led by 30-year-old future Prime Minister Ehud Barak. At 4.23 p.m., the commandos burst into the plane from all sides. Shots rang out inside the cramped aircraft. The Israelis killed the two male hijackers and captured the two women. In trying to subdue one of the female hijackers, a soldier hit her with his gun, which accidentally went off. The bullet passed through her and struck the shoulder of another commando, named Benjamin Netanyahu. From start to finish, the operation took two minutes. With the exception of one injured passenger who later died from their wounds, all the others were rescued. Racing out to meet the plane, Moshe Dayan again encountered Captain Levy. This time, he invited the pilot out to dinner. But as it turned out, it was Levy's 50th birthday, and his wife had been on board the plane, and they preferred a quiet meal out in Tel Aviv instead. The Sabina operation, codenamed Isotope, was the first Israeli hijacking rescue and quickly became legendary. Israel learned that one tool in its counterterrorism tool chest was the daring rescue operation, while such a feat could only work occasionally, it was a huge morale boost and a clear demonstration of Israeli strength and determination. 
It wouldn't end airplane hijackings, but from now on, every terrorist would have to fear that their activities might very well cost them their life. The two female terrorists were put on trial and sentenced to life in prison, but 11 years later both were freed in a prisoner exchange. The last surviving of these terrorists, Teresa Khalsa, died in 2020, having admitted that her intention all along was to blow up the plane. As for Leila Khaled, the female terrorist with the PFLP, in 2020 the Arab and Muslim Ethnicities and Diaspora Studies program at San Francisco State University invited her to speak in an online event. After an organized protest from the Jewish community and other legal groups, Facebook, Eventbrite, and Zoom prevented the event from using their platforms. YouTube cut off its live stream after 20 minutes. In 2021, the organizers tried to repeat Khaled's lecture, which was again blocked. They complained about the suppression of their free speech. Apparently, those pesky Zionist Jews in the Bay Area are still upset about Leila Khaled trying to murder everyone aboard that plane in midair when really she's just a feminist icon for Palestinian free speech. Leila Khaled continues to advocate for violence against Israel and speaks at events celebrating past terrorist attacks against the Jewish state. As for Black September, although the Sabina hijacking ended badly for them, the organization continued attacking Israeli, European, and Jordanian targets. A letter bomb campaign to dozens of Israeli diplomatic missions killed an official in Britain, they sabotaged gas plants in the Netherlands and Germany. But by the summer of 1972, Black September set its sights on an attack that would undoubtedly dazzle and terrify the entire world, as for two weeks the whole globe would be focused on a single place for a single event. Munich, Germany, and the Olympic Games. That's next time. You can find me at jewaudonno.com and my email is jewaudonnopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Heathrow out. See you later.